0: Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. Remember to go check out the website, follow the show, and please rate it five stars. It might not seem like a lot to you, but it really does make a difference. And thank you for the emails, Brian, Joshua, Margaret, and Jack. I really appreciated them. And a thank you especially to Brian. Yes, that same Brian and Steven for the donation since last episode. It really does help keep the show going. The website and the RSS hosting feed are not free. And while I'm happy to pay for them, the donations really do take a lot of stress off my back. But last time, we handled the opening reign of Emperor Ming, which included his warlock issues and his general continuation of productive policy that was kickstarted by his father, Emperor Guangwu. But we also touched on Buddhism, something we realized that simply did not show up and set the world on fire. Instead, it got co-opted and lumped in, in large part with Taoism, Confucianism, and others. And we really did not, okay, well, the we's royal I really did not talk at all about what Buddhism, or at least the initial system of Buddhism, was. So, after a couple of messages from y'all inquiring about it, I will explain it beyond the old, oh yeah, it was just lumped in with Taoism early on in China and that's all you need to know now. We should, and we will, dive deeper. So, without further ado, the History of China, episode 52. Buddhism Intro, and more. Let me clarify the obvious. I am not a Buddhist. I did not study Buddhism beyond a few courses in college. So, as with all intense topics with heightened importance and relevancy to the current world, I will include this classic disclaimer. And yeah, the Xiongnu are all about gone, so they will not and have never gotten this. Sorry, Xiongnu. But look, Buddhism, like any religion, is not one singular hive mind. There are different interpretations and practices, region to region, house to house, person to person. This is the broad-brush history of early Buddhism, its sort of origin story, its early practices and beliefs, And while they indeed would and have evolved region to region, year to year, throughout its long history, this episode, I hope, provides a solid foundation of understanding to see where those nuances we're going to see in our show derive from. The history of China is our show, and Buddhism in China is not the definitive story of Buddhism, period. So, with it clear... That this is just a general foundation and not the definitive history and background of all Buddhism. Because it's not. Let's begin. Buddhism, like Confucianism, derives its name from a person. I'm not going to door the explorer, you guys, on this one. Buddhism has, yes, Buddha. Buddha is not a Zeus or Jupiter or Thor or Odin character. And what I mean is that, well, look, I'm going to get myself into a lot of trouble with this one. But what I mean is that Buddhism is not just an idea or a spirit in the sky. He was allegedly, at one point, a real person, putting him in the Jesus, Muhammad, and Confucius group, amongst many more, obviously. But obviously also, who the Buddha was and what he actually practiced and believed evolved and grew way more after his death than during his life. Much like most, if not all, religious belief systems based around an actual human that actually existed. In the 6th century BC, enter Sudhartha Gautama. This is where I double down in my, quote, getting in trouble, end quote, because, okay, let's just get this over with. Like Jesus, Siddhartha's life is chronicled much more, if not entirely, after his death. No, there is no ideological or historical relation between these two. It's just an analogy to help paint a broader picture for those that have no understanding of one but some of the other. Somewhere in the 1st or 2nd century BC, and I'm going to do another disclaimer, I also don't speak any other languages besides English and some Chinese. So my pronunciation today is going to be very rough. But somewhere in the 1st or 2nd century BC, Ashvagosa wrote the Buddha Charita, which translates roughly to mean the life of Buddha. Buddha Charita states that Siddhartha was born the son of a king and queen and was in a warrior lifestyle. He was born in and around 563 BC, according to the Buddha Charita, in the Himalayan foothills at a place called Lumbini. According to the Buddha Charita, and legend states that a soothsayer told Siddhartha's parents was more susceptible to withdraw from temporal life, i.e. become a renouncer, which is sort of an idea slash group of people that renounced, well the material world, to a large extent. Siddhartha's father heard this and decided to counter this potential situation laid out by the soothsayer by putting as much luxuries into his son's life as possible, essentially saying, you might be susceptible to become a renouncer and go into the woods and live essentially a hermit life, but look, having all this stuff is pretty awesome, and I gotta say, I can understand his argument. But the legend then states that even with this life of luxury, Siddhartha would go on four life-changing chariot rides. It was on these rides that he saw firsthand the worst of human suffering. Because on these rides, he saw the suffering of illness, of death, of old age, and saw, well, the life of the renouncers. And that last one is going to be important. In the super basic rundown of Siddhartha's conclusion from these rides, I mean, he comes to one, because again, this is not the official and definitive history of an entire religion, but in short, his conclusion from these rides was that all the pleasures of life and of the earth, well, those, those were just transitory. They did nothing actually but mask inevitable human suffering. He came to this conclusion also, too, by realizing the contrast of his easy and luxurious life and all the suffering around him that he was seeing. The luxuries did not protect him or anyone from suffering. Seeking these pleasures was surely transitory and thus would be folly to pursue. Again, this is a super, super concise version of a very complex historical and religious story. So if you are interested, please do more research and I will post videos and links online to help foster any and all curiosity about this subject. The History of Buddhism would be and could be its own podcast, and I'm sure it already is 15 podcasts, but alas... This is the history of China. Anyway, after coming to this shocking realization about luxuries and the pleasures of Earth, he got a bunch of teachers to help him explore these ideas. And he then decided to engage in what can only be described as severe renunciation. I mean, not a little bit. He went all out with the renunciation. So in doing so, he left his wife and newborn son, Raula. And I told you, Renunciation is an important part to this story. But Siddhartha goes to the forest to begin this severe, and I mean severe, renunciation of the material world. And ended up not eating till the point of essentially starvation. I mean, he was going to die. But on the brink of death, he realized that the renunciation was to a great extent only accelerating the suffering. By starving himself, he realized that he may not have been masking the suffering of life with luxury, but he certainly was not fixing it or accepting it in an enlightened way. Instead, he was just causing more suffering. The story goes, on the brink of death, he finally ate food and then sat down beneath a tree. He was confused He knew that all the luxuries in the world were only going to mask his suffering, but being a full severe renunciationist, if that's even a word, was just making the suffering worse, and that really can't be the solution. And it was beneath this tree that he meditated. And this is where there is a break in some accounts. As one story says, he meditated until the morning. And others stipulate that Siddhartha meditated for six months. Regardless, the time he meditated is not actually as important to the story. Because whether it was in the morning or six months later, Siddhartha had attained nirvana. Now, nirvana means enlightenment. He had attained enlightenment. The severe starvation of the more common renunciation people, as I mentioned, did not fix any of these issues or enlighten him. But upon attaining nirvana, this enlightenment gave both the answers to the causes of human suffering, which he sort of knew about, but more groundbreaking. It gave a permanent release from that suffering. It gave a permanent release from it. And it is here. That Siddhartha goes from Siddhartha to the Buddha. The name Buddha roughly means just the enlightened one. And upon becoming Buddha, he began to spread his teachings, show others the answers he had found. The teaching was based in spreading what he saw as the truths, which themselves came out of compassion for other people's suffering, for their suffering. And here is the spark notes of his most important teachings. There were the four noble truths and the eightfold path. The four noble truths were one, that life is dukkha. Pardon the pronunciation, but that life is, yes, suffering. It's D-U-K-K-H-A for those who want to correct me on the email. But look, life as we normally live it is full of those pleasures and pains that hurt the body and the mind. But pleasures, he said, do not represent lasting happiness. Again, they're just masking the inevitable suffering. And they are inevitably tied in with suffering even more because we only add on to our suffering because we suffer from wanting those pleasures wanting them to continue even though they're ending and wanting pain to go so pleasure can come. That in itself is suffering. It's a whole loop of suffering. And the second noble truth is that suffering is caused, just like the first sort of pointed out, by craving for sense pleasures and for things to be as they are not, which he views in a very simple way is essentially saying Our issue is that we refuse to accept life as it is. We crave things that aren't actually in front of us, that we don't have, that aren't the way it is. The third noble truth, however, states very clearly that suffering has an end. But it won't end if you keep masking it. And that's where the fourth comes in. The fourth noble truth says that there's a means to an end. The Eightfold Path and the Middle Way. If one follows this combined path, he or she will attain Nirvana, which is what Buddha had reached, which was the incredible state of all knowing, lucid awareness, in which there is only peace and joy. There's no conflict anymore with the cravings or the suffering. And so those are the Four Noble Truths. Though, what is the Eightfold Path? Well, If you have ever seen Buddhist imagery, if you saw my Instagram last week, you would have seen some. And you may have seen the eight-spoked wheel, which is known as the Wheel of Dhamma. D-H-A-M-M-A. The spokes or paths, well, the spokes on the wheel represent the eight paths. And they are, the spokes in order are, the right views, which are the four noble truths. The other one is right intention. Right speech. Right action, right livelihood, right endeavor, right mindfulness, which is to say you have total concentration in activity, and the right concentration, which is essentially meditation. The Eightfold Path is pervaded by the principle, however, of the Middle Way, which characterizes the Buddha's life. Now, the middle way is a rejection of all extremes of thought, of all extremes of emotion, action, lifestyle, etc. And this comes from his time being in the highly luxurious lifestyle, but also one of severe renunciation. Because the middle way essentially says that you're not going to get to it by being extreme on either end. That the severe mortification of the body, i.e. not eating in the forest, or on the other side, a life of intense indulgence and pleasures, well, those are both terrible. And Buddha advocated a moderate or, quote-unquote, balanced, wandering lifestyle, which would allow for the cultivation of mental and emotional equanimity through meditation and morality. So, with those teachings in place, he began to have followers and his wandering celibate followers gradually settled down into monasteries and would proceed to teach some locals about, well, the Buddhist teachings. And they were not evangelical in the ways we would imagine, but they would teach some of the ideas and try to instill some of it onto others. Because remember, craving to share this knowledge with people would be suffering. Now, what were some of these early practices? Well, they included visiting the birthplace of Buddha, worshipping the tree under which he became enlightened, the Bodhi tree. And that's important. But also, there were Buddha images and temples, and there were the relics of his body. I mean, this stuff is not really that crazy. A lot of other religions have the exact same thing. In the 3rd century BC, which is, I know, we just jumped a whole bunch of time, But a king in southern India and Sri Lanka helped proliferate the spread of Buddhism across that region. And there it went from sort of an underground belief system, and it really starts to proliferate into having a massive foothold. But like most religions, it was not exactly cut and dry, and different interpretations began to spring up almost immediately. For example, monastic schools of the Buddhist teachings would constantly grapple with Buddha's teachings, that often fell more into the vague area. For example, Buddha forever dodged the question of whether or not humans have a soul or not. Oh, and after he died, he did not have anyone lined up to be a clear successor to lead his new monastic order. It's not because he was lazy, but this was because Buddha really did not view himself as a religious prophet. Instead, he was merely just a teacher of a diffuse universal truth he happened to discover. But it was a truth that anyone could and should theoretically attain. They can all get to his level of nirvana. He told the monks to, quote, be lamps unto yourselves and make the Dhamma their guide, end quote. He's not saying follow my order and my monastic structure. He's really, according to these stories, really just telling people that you know the way, Now go find it. But regardless, those two are vague, and people would interpret those to different meanings. And this is where it begins to relate to our story. About the first century CE, there finally was a major split, and occurred within the Buddhist fold between two branches. And these branches, in and of themselves, had tons more branches. But these were sort of the umbrella branches. And the first was the Hinayana, the lesser vehicle branch of schools. And today, there's only the Ravada school, which was founded in the 4th century BCE that still remains today. And it is found in modern-day Sri Lanka and all Southeast Asian countries. This school stresses the historical figure of Gautama Buddha and the centrality of the monk's lifestyle and practice, really hardcore on meditation now, the Ravada monks, the ones that still are in this lesser vehicle branch of Buddhist philosophy, hold that Buddha taught a doctrine of anatta, no soul. Ah, see, when he spoke of the impermanence of the human body in form, perceptions, sensations, consciousness, and volition. See, the split is around another one of the vague ideas and teachings. They believe that human beings continue to be reformed and reborn, and they can collect karma until they reach nirvana. Now, the Rivada school of thought and those monks have compiled a sacred canon of early Buddhist teachings and regulations that is called the Tripitaka. Again, pronunciation could be way off. Where our story more matters, though, is the Mahayana, the greater vehicle, branch of schools that began in and around the 1st century CE. Greater vehicle believers are found today especially in Korea, Japan, Tibet, and clearly most importantly for us, China. The three most prominent schools of the greater vehicle Mahayana branch of Buddhism are Pure Land, Chanor Zen, and Tantra. Mahayana schools in general utilize texts that are called sutras, which stress that lay people can also be good Buddhists. You don't have to be a die-hard monk who lives and breathes it to the 11th degree. And they also believe that there are other effective paths to nirvana in addition to meditation. For instance, the chanting and good works utilized in Pure Land. They believe that the Buddha and all human beings have their origin in what is variously called Buddha nature, Buddha mind, or emptiness. So, that's a lot to take in, but that is our basic rundown of Buddhist thought. You can now see how after a few interpretational leaps, a lot of time, both those branches, but the Mahayana branch in particular, and that thought process could really grab onto and evolve with Taoism which sought similar beliefs of harmony and suffering. And the big one, what happens when you die? And where do you come from? And as Buddhism begins to grab more of the mindshare in China over the centuries, and it's weird because it starts in India, but, well, it's going to end up having a lot bigger mindshare in China than India over the next couple thousand years. But regardless, as that happens, and Buddhism does have more of that mindshare, we will cover it. But hopefully this provides ample foundation to understand those changes, those events, those beliefs, what causes them, and how it affects China, i.e. our podcast, heading forward. Now, let's get back to China real quick. Get in the car. We are going to the year 73. Get in, close the door, seatbelts in, we're getting out of Buddhism for the last little part of this episode, because Emperor Ming, as we remember from last episode, was continuing to pad the foundation that Emperor Guangwu set for the new Eastern Han. And he was building on it, too. He sent more campaigns out against the Northern Xiongnu, which again, just like the earlier ones, were not decisive by any means, but it again continued to show the Han and the Xiongnu that the Han was no longer just a carcass that the Xiongnu could slowly pick apart and eat at just a few decades earlier. They were fighting back now, and clearly only getting stronger every day. And by 74, Emperor Ming did what Emperor Guangwu could not do, and the Han fully established suzerainty over the Xi Yu kingdoms. The whole gang's getting back together, and then, sort of anticlimactically, in 75, Emperor Ming died. Yeah, well, that was that. Interestingly, and of some importance for the future, Emperor Ming did not have a temple built in his honor. During the Western Han Dynasty, it was typical that that would happen. You would be buried and you'd have your own temple. with beaut- I mean, It's a beautiful temple. It's virtually a palace. And people would come and honor you. But Emperor Ming continued a precedent that, well, the Eastern Han would continue to do. They wouldn't do that. They would all sort of be lumped together, sort of like the, uh... Well, I'm blanking on the name now. Sort of like the Pantheon. Mm, Yes, the Pantheon. There it is. The Pantheon in Rome, where at a time you had a bunch of emperors all honored in the same place. And this does show a humble nature. But it also has its economic reasonings, too. Because the truth is, building a new temple every single time you have an emperor die, well, that's going to be pretty tough. So, this episode won't be the longest, but I think with Emperor Ming showing his domination over the northern kingdoms, okay, not domination, but he has shown that their time in the sun, or their little comeback tour, is now over. The Han is set, society is doing well, and now we have a better idea of what Buddhist teaching was. So, thank you so much for listening, and really, please go check out the website, and also rate it five stars, but also email me suggestions for a new name for the podcast show. The history of China is obviously keeping its name, but dorm room history, eh, I don't live in a dorm room anymore, and I mean that. I'm taking all suggestions, because on top of this show, I have all but concluded that I want to do a much longer-form, Dan Carlin-style show on top of this, about the U.S. Civil War. And I can't have it be called Dorm Room History. So, anyway, next time, the Han Dynasty continues on. We finally got some of the details out of the way of some other things, and now, well... Let's get on with it. So, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you all next time on the History of China.